the best 10% of hospitals in the country achieve this rate, what would happen if we brought the overall rate in the country down to that? And what would happen is we'd save $1.5 billion every year and we'd be free up resources to treat another 300,000 patients and in addition another 250,000 patients would go home with no complications. Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a discussion of one of Grattan's reports. Welcome to the Grattan podcast channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're discussing an issue that ultimately affects us all, the quality and safety of the care provided in Australia's hospitals. My guest is Grattan Institute's Health Program Director, Stephen Duckett, who has spent much of his long and distinguished career investigating and thinking about these very issues. Stephen, welcome. Thanks, Paul. Stephen, you've now published a number of reports for Grattan on patient care, but I think the title of your latest report really tells the story. It's called Safer Care Saves Money. And the subtitle is How to Improve Patient Care and Save Public Money at the Same Time. So that sounds like a win-win to me, but before we drill down into the details, just set the scene for us, Stephen. How safe are our hospitals? If I have to go to hospital in Australia, what are my chances of suffering some sort of complication? So, Paul, every hospital admission has brings with it a risk. And the, the point is, that is the risk better than the benefit? Mm. And by and large, we, we make a decision that, yep, the risk the risk is less than the benefit. And so we go ahead with, a, with our admission if it's an elective or whatever. But uh, the reality is that about one in every four people who are admitted to hospital for an overnight, overnight stay have something go wrong. Say that again. One in every four people who are admitted for an overnight stay have something go wrong. Right. Now, sometimes it might be quite small. It might be uh, you know, a bit of nausea or, or, or something. And sometimes it might be a bit more serious, falling out of bed. And sometimes it might be even more serious, uh, having a heart attack while you're in hospital. Mm. So, uh, so there's a range of these things happening. But what's more interesting is that some hospitals are better than others at this, that some hospitals have lower rates and some hospitals have higher rates. Mm. So uh, these complications cost money from the small to the severe. They all cost money in some way or another. Uh, in the latest report, you've been able to calculate how much money. Yep. So, you know, some... some uh, complications are actually very expensive, you know, th tens of thousands of dollars if they occur, and some complications are actually quite cheap. But the the very, very expensive ones are quite, quite rare, mm -hmm. and the very, very common ones are quite common, and the costs add up. And so across all of the complications, about the, the cost to to the health system is about five and a half billion dollars a year across public and private hospitals, and uh, and you know some of them, like hospital acquired infections, alone cost about a billion dollars. So five plus billion dollars a year, is that money all able to be saved? No, uh, it's not. Um, but 
we estimate that if we could get the complication rate down to what we see in the best 10% of hospitals, so an achievable target, hospitals today, in fact quite a lot of hospitals today are achieving this rate, if we can get it down to the, the rate we see in the best 10% of hospitals, we would save $1.5 billion a year. Now that that's a lot of money in anybody's terms, but what's more interesting is that if you know we, we have an excess demand for hospitals, we have waiting times, uh, people waiting to get into hospitals for elective procedures, if we could free up the money, the resources, the, the length of stay, the days of stay that we spend on on these because of these complications, we'd be able to treat more about 300,000 additional patients every year. Okay, so it's worth going for, it's worth doing, but there's a bit of a problem here, isn't there, Stephen? Because as I understand it, the way our public hospitals are funded, they actually stand to receive more money when they treat patients who suffer these complications. Yeah, it, 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 it does seem a bit perverse that we're rewarding hospitals for having these complications. And the way it works is this. We've got a scheme called activity-based funding, and uh, the, that means that the, the government funds public hospitals on the basis of this and that the rate they pay for a more complex patient is more than the rate they pay for a less complex patient. Mm-hmm. And they judge complexity whether or not that complexity is caused, the patient had complex issues, diabetes, for example, when they're admitted to hospital, or whether the complexity is caused by a, a complication while they're in hospital. And so we're, we're, the hospital gets more revenue. But as I said, the complications cost money already. And what we did was we, we looked at the biggest uh, 20, the 20 largest uh, public hospitals in the country, and in every case, the cost of complications was more than the revenue they got. But, but even more than that, the cost of complications was more than twice, more than two and a half times, in fact, the revenue they got. So significantly increased costs relative to the revenue. So the hospitals have a financial incentive as well as any other sort of moral or or uh, professional incentive to reduce complications, the hospitals already have a significant financial incentive to reduce complications. Unfortunately, they don't know that. They haven't been told, you know, the hospitals themselves probably don't have the wherewithal to calculate the costs of complications and, and the revenue and so on. And so we argue in this report that, you know, there is this financial incentive, tell the hospitals about what the costs of complications are, tell the hospitals about what the revenue impact is so that they can understand uh, the financial imperative to improve so that, you know, showing them that safer care saves money. So if you and the researchers at Grattan Institute have been able to dive into the data and produce these numbers and this argument, why do you say that the hospitals don't know this? So, you know, Grattan has some analytical capacity that that every hospital in the in the country doesn't have, um, even though it's you know a small uh, you know the the team that was working on this was uh, myself, uh, one full time person and one part time person. Small but perfectly formed. Team. <laughs> so we're we're able to do the analysis, and there's no and the bigger states could certainly do exactly the same analysis with with their staff. The Commonwealth Department of Health could do exactly the same analysis with their staff. And, but the smaller states might, might have a bit of trouble. But what we're saying is let you know, the states or the Commonwealth should do this analysis and tell the hospitals because it's, you know, I think, really interesting for a hospital to see themselves where they stand. And if I were a member of a hospital board, I'd be really interested in this sort of information. 
So just before we go on, just clarify one thing for me. You're talking about the states and the hospitals. Are we talking here only about public hospitals or does this argument also apply to the network of private hospitals? Yeah, well, private hospitals funding is not as standardised as public hospital funding. So across the country, public hospitals are funded on activity-based funding basis. Private hospitals have negotiated agreements, uh, contracts with private health insurers. And what we're saying is that the private health insurers ought to be applying the same pressure to the uh, to to the private hospitals, the, the private health insurance contract negotiations, or to say to the private hospitals, "Hang on, you've got this level of complications. We can see in other hospitals much lower levels of complications. We want you to get your complications down to their levels, uh, and also start to use the contract negotiations to to try and in- give the give the private hospitals a financial incentive to lift their game as well. Okay, so this latest report doesn't just shine a light on the cost of complications. It suggests in particular a very big reform to the hospital accreditation system to improve the quality of patient care. Now, Stephen, you know a bit about hospital accreditation in Australia. Am I right in saying that some few years ago this was the subject of your PhD? Indeed, uh, Paul. I I did my PhD when I was still in primary school, um, <laughs> and uh, so we uh, it, we were, were evaluating hospital accreditation as as it was in the in the seventies. Goodness. And uh, in the seventies, it involved a set of standards. Uh, it involved an accreditation visit by surveyors. It involved an accreditation report, which was kept secret from the public. Uh, it involved a decision about accreditation, which more or less in every case they gave uh, an award of accreditation. And what is astonishing is that it's exactly the same today. Set of national standards, a survey visit, an accreditation report, which is kept secret, a decision to accredit, which more or less in every case uh, they give accreditation. And you, know, you cannot think of uh, any other aspect of the health system which has remained more or less the same in form and function uh, over that period of time. It sounds inexplicable and almost unforgivable. Um, Stephen, there have been a number of scandals or at the very least tragedies in Australian hospitals over recent years. Tell us briefly about those and in particular whether our accreditation system such as it is played the sort of role it should. So Paul, that's uh, yet one element about why we need to think about how accreditation is working and what's able to show and what's not able to pick up. So if I just use two of these, uh, the Bundaberg scandal in uh, in Queensland and the Jerawarra Bacchus Marsh uh, tragedy in, in uh, Victoria. Mm. And there's been others, uh, Campbelltown, King Edward in Western Australia, Campbelltown, Camden in, uh, in New South Wales. Um, in all of them, the hospitals had been accredited for a number of years. In a couple of them, accreditation visits had just been undertaken recently. And in all of them, they were passing accreditation with flying colours. So the, the accreditation process did not pick up scandals that hit the front page of the newspapers and tragedies that, uh, about quality and safety of care. Okay, so so the current system of accreditation is not good enough. Describe to me a better system. So one of the one of the problems, and one of the additional problems, Paul, with accreditation, is that 
the doctors, the clinical staff don't feel engaged with it. They don't feel it makes sense to them. They think it's some sort of external thing that really isn't directly related to the problems that they have in their hospitals and the work that they actually do day to day. Mm -hmm. So what we're saying is that rather than spending all of your energy and only spending your energy on national standards and their application and checking boxes and so on, what they should do is say to the hospitals, give the hospitals the data we've talked about, give the hospitals information about the complication rates, how they compare with other hospitals, how the you know, joint infection rate in the orthopaedic unit compares with a joint infection rate in other um, hospitals and, and actually have real data about that hospital and say to the hospital, your job is to develop an improvement plan for your hospital that's relevant to your hospital. Mm-hmm. The accreditation process will then become kicking that plan around. So going to the hospital and saying, show us your plan, show us what you've done, show us the progress, and we will critique it. We will be there to help you improve yourself. So it's moving from a quality assurance against standards approach to a quality improvement approach, which is grounded in the actual work of the hospital and is is designed to help the hospital improve. And then you publish the data, you publish the report, you, you put it out in the public domain and the cycle starts all over again and a couple of years later or a few years later another team comes in to look at what's happened in the meantime. So it's all about trying to drive improvement across the system, making it much more relevant to the hospital, hospital specific. And in the current system, if you're the best hospital in the country in terms of infection rates or if you're the worst hospital in this country in terms of infection rates, the accreditation process looks remarkably the same. So what we're saying is it should be quite different, it should be quite tailored, trying to improve the specifics of a hospital. Okay, so so sum up for us, Stephen, just, just remind us about the benefits of implementing the reform package you outline in your latest report. How many patients would benefit and how would the Australian taxpayer benefit? So what we're trying to do is to say, look, a lot of people have complications in hospital. If you're overnight, one in every four. What we're saying is we can do better than that. We can say here is an achievable target. The best 10% of hospitals in the country achieve this rate. What would happen if we brought the overall rate in the country down to that? And what would happen is we'd save $1.5 billion every year and we'd be free up resources to treat another 300,000 patients and in addition another 250,000 patients would go home with no complications. Thanks Stephen, thanks for your expertise and your insights today and thank you to you, our listeners. If you would like to read Stephen's reports and articles on patient care, including his new report, Safer Care Saves Money, head to our website, grattan.edu.au. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news, reports and events by following us on Twitter, at GrattanInst, or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes and leaving us a rating or a review. Thanks for listening. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy. 
with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.